Hello everyone, Kyle here, and welcome back to my Communist Book Club. In this week's episode, we'll continue our way through Svetlana Alexeyevich's Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets. Before we dive into this chapter, let's do some quick housekeeping. First of all, to remind everyone, over on Facebook, we have a page and a group set up. So head over to facebook.com forward slash Kyle's Communist Book Club. There you can join in, get into the group where we share some inside material, pictures of the books, and more. I also have to give a huge shout out to our listener out there. Andre has been giving me some amazing photos of Soviet-era English language learner book. Andre, thank you very much for taking the time. He's from Russia and has been speaking with me about some of his experiences and will be opening up to some questions in the future. In addition, a reminder that we will be doing an interview with a Soviet tour group coming up here. So look forward to that. That should be dropping towards the end of this week, assuming our recording uh, lands on time and everything goes well with the editing. For those following along in the last couple episodes in book four, you know the table of contents has been a little hard to follow. I apologize that this episode might have the same thing where we're going to be leaving off mid-chapter. Previously, we were tackling part one, the Consolation of Apocalypse. That was snatches of street noise and kitchen conversations from 1991 to 2001. That will officially be concluded today. That ran from page 15 in the book the whole way down to page 41. In today's, we're going to be finishing the section on everything and opening up 10 stories in a red interior, beginning on page 41. So let's get to it then. I decided not to clip anything from the On Everything section. It was very small and a group of voices giving final thoughts before the book opens up wide. A couple pieces of note. One, there was a continuation of last week's idea of a scrambling to learn business quickly, where before the idea of making money was shunned in favor of education and a better life over just making a dollar. Some of that came out again. Speaker in there says her mother was so overwhelmed by that change that she actually had a stroke. She goes on to say, quote, I will never forget the rows of elderly along the side of the road, end quote, talking about how people quickly became impoverished when everything shifted to a business focus. In fact, she worked at a perfume factory where they paid her in perfume and makeup. A big takeaway from On Everything was a line that says, it's surprising how fast being poor became shameful. With a quick summary of on everything out of the way, now we dive into 10 stories in a red interior, starting with on the beauty of dictatorship and the mystery of butterflies crushed against the pavement, starting on page 41 in the physical form. A heads up that we will not be finishing this one today. This is a conversation that goes back and forth between two women, Today, I'll be pulling primarily from Elena Yurivna's comments. She has a very pro-communist stance talking about the ideology shift when the Soviet Union fell, how she was following the ideal set forth and no longer applied with the change. As always, I'll do my best to let the voices speak their piece, and I'll do a little summary afterwards, so stay tuned. I remember the way people's eyes gleamed at the beginning of Perestroika. I'll never forget it. They were prepared to lynch the communists, to send us all to prison camps. Volumes of Gorky and Mayakovsky piled up in the dumpsters. People would drop the complete works of Lenin off at the paper recycling center, and I would take them home. 
Yes, I'll admit it. I recant nothing. I'm not ashamed of anything. I never changed my colors, repainting myself from red to gray. You'll meet people like that if the reds come to power. They welcome the reds. If it's the whites, they'll greet the whites with open arms. People performed incredible transformations. Yesterday they were communists. Today they're ultra-democrats. Before my very eyes, honest communists turned into religious liberals. But I love the word comrade, and I'll never stop loving it. It's a good word. Savok? Bite your tongue. The Soviet was a very good person, capable of traveling beyond the Urals, into the furthest deserts, all for the sake of ideals, not dollars. We weren't after somebody else's green bills. The Dnieper hydroelectric station, the siege of Stalingrad, the first man in space, that was all us. The mighty Savok. I still take pleasure in writing USSR. That was my country. The country I live in today is not. I feel like I'm living on foreign soil. I was born Soviet. My grandmother didn't believe in God, but she did believe in communism. Until his dying day, my father waited for socialism to return. I love this clip in particular, because many Western listeners will know there is a propaganda line that goes something like, quote, people in communist countries really dislike their lives and definitely would opt to change the system if they could, end quote. You'll see all kinds of variants of the sort. I've had a great chance to express these with some people that lived in these systems. It's, it's interesting to hear their reaction. The propaganda game is strong. This statement in particular, this clip, really strikes home, especially after we've heard some people these last couple of weeks talking about the hardships. Yurivna does not end it there. In this conversation, while she's speaking, she talks about saying, I am a communist, but no one wants to listen to us anymore. Lenin is now considered a gangster. Don't even mention Stalin. We're criminals now. Again, a juxtaposition of thinking. She compliments Alexeyevich on leaving Moscow and heading to the provinces. A chance to meet the real people of Russia, she says. People that are living very poorly, even by Russian standards. In the next breath, she says, no one told them there was going to be capitalism. In the 90s, they thought they were fighting for socialism to get fixed. And then they were robbed when they were out cheering for change. So as they were championing things, she says that's when all of the commodities and uh, means of productions, if you will, it, it, all, all of the state-run institutions were sold off to oligarchs. Now, after that clip we heard, she goes on telling us about her father coming back from the camps. He was in the Finnish campaign and was rescued by some Finnish soldiers as he was in a, a river when it was very freezing. He was trying to just swim to the shore. Uh, they pulled him out and in a prisoner exchange, went back to the Soviet Union around 1940, and then was sent to a camp. She says because of this, her father died young. The, the camp actually cut his life short, but also so did the traumas of perestroika. Those were cruel times. A powerful nation was being built, and they really did build it. Plus, they defeated Hitler. That's what my father would say. 
I grew up a serious girl, a real young pioneer. Today, everyone thinks that they used to force people into the pioneers. I'm telling you, no one was forced to do anything. All of the kids dreamed of becoming young pioneers, of marching together, to drums and horns, singing young pioneer songs. My motherland, I'll love forever. Where else will I find one like her? The Eagle Nation has millions of chicks, and we are our nation's pride. Well, right off the bat, we have even more commentary that things were not as forced as we outsiders are led to believe. The ideas of young pioneers in the States... Let me be careful with how I word this. I don't want to make it seem like Western propaganda is that intelligent that people over here knew what young pioneers were. I, I don't think that they did. It's not a word I've ever heard before actually diving into the history and learning what it was. Um, they, they would lead people to believe that things like that were compulsory and meant to brainwash the children. Keep in mind that we have Boy Scouts over here, which has had all kinds of very, very scary allegations all in its own right, just in the past, what was that, 10 years, five years ago, maybe all that stuff came out. So I just like to call out for Western listeners, the amount of hypocrisy that we get in what we hear versus these actual anecdotes, something really to take note of. Another concept to keep in mind as we're going forward is the idea that humans like to judge. And when we judge, we like to use all or nothing absolutes. We often like things to be all good or all evil. As we see in this book, things are rarely that case. There's a pendulum swing, and people's lives often fall somewhere in the middle. When we're judging a nation, it's hard to say that the Soviet Union was all evil or all good, just as we can't do that with any country to the state. There are errors in every sort of government. Though what we're hearing from these clips is that people did have a passion for what they were doing. When it comes to the young pioneer, she says, people wanted to join. Quote, it's not Stalin, I remember. It's our life. My father wanted all of his kids to go to university. That was his dream. And all of us, there are four of us, ended up with degrees. But he also taught us how to plow, to mow the grass. I know how to load a cart with hay and how to make a haystack. Anything can come in handy, Papa believed. And he was right. Now I want to remember it all. I want to understand what I've lived through. And not just my own life. All of our lives. Our Soviet life. Overall, I'm not impressed with my people. And I'm not impressed with the communists either. Our communist leaders. Especially nowadays. All of them have grown petty and bourgeois. All of them chase after the good life, the sweet life. They want to consume and consume, grab hold of whatever they can. The communists aren't what they used to be. Now we have communists who make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, millionaires, an apartment in London, a palace in Cyprus. What kind of communists are these? What do they believe in? If you ask them, they'll look at you like you're an idiot. Don't tell us your Soviet fairy tales. Anything but that. What a great country they destroyed. Sold it off at bargain prices. Our motherland. 
so that some of us could go traipsing around Europe berating Marx. The times are as terrifying as they were under Stalin. I stand behind everything I'm saying. Will you write all this down? I don't believe you. We don't have district or regional party committees anymore. We've left the Soviet regime in the dust. And so what do we have in its place? The boxing ring. The jungle. Thieves running the country. They grabbed furiously, racing for the biggest piece of the pie. My God, Chubias, the foreman of Perestroika. Now he goes around bragging, giving lectures around the world, saying that in other countries it took centuries to build capitalism, while here we did it in three years. They carved it up with surgical precision. And if anyone was a thief, God bless them. Maybe their grandchildren will turn out decent. Ugh. And these are the Democrats. They put on American suits and did what their Uncle Sam told them to do. But American suits don't fit them right. They sit crooked. That's what you get. It wasn't freedom they were after. It was blue jeans, supermarkets. They were fooled by the shiny wrappers. Now our stores are filled with all sorts of stuff, an abundance. But heaps of salami have nothing to do with happiness or glory. We used to be a great nation. Now we're nothing but peddlers and looters, grain merchants and managers. I would love to go around using that quote that heaps of salami does not equal happiness. No one outside of this book club or podcast would really understand that. In the clip, we heard her stoked with disappointment in the Communist Party that had failed her. She goes on to talk about how uh, they have millionaire communists now, people that sold out the idea and became rich from it, going out and speaking in other areas. That's going to be a theme throughout. She'll continue speaking to this aspect that, that the leadership had their goals misaligned. I hope that would be the appropriate wording for it. The ideas changed from wanting to help the people to wanting to be wanted in the West and things of that sort. She says, what a great country they destroyed. They sold everything from out from under the people. She says, the times are as terrifying now as under Stalin. We don't have regional or party committees. Now we have boxing rings and thieves stealing the pie from under us. These people go around bragging and giving lectures. As she said, they carved it up with surgical precision. She also goes on to talk about the people getting lazy and slacking. I'd be interested to hear this from any of our listeners out there, if that was actually a thing. She says, people started taking time off from work and hanging out at the cafes. Because of that, there's some commentary about the KGB keeping people in line. She talks about the bugging and the snitching. She talks about how there were ways to get around it, like hitting a certain peg in the phone when you're using the rotary dialing, turning on music and, and some sort of white noise. It's still things you can do even to these days to keep people out. She says people were afraid and then talks about how the stores were running out of milk and wondering where it went. My friend Andre and I got to talking about this recently, questioning where that stuff went to. It was one of the first questions I had to ask. In our exchange, we shared a video of a Soviet grocery store that many people out there may have already seen this clip. I myself had seen parts of it, but it's barren shelves, depressing looking food. You see cartons that are smashed open and people are picking through very, very little remnants of what's left. 
It was interesting to hear this come right back into this chapter of the book. We were meeting and surpassing quotas. So where were the products? If they put out salami, it would be gone in seconds. These are the things that the West often uses against the Soviet Union. As I understand history in this context more and more, as I hear the voices at play, it does feel like the propaganda that was lobbed against them was from the same sort of communist moving into capitalist vein that a system that was working before stopped, potentially due to mismanagement of goods, some malicious activities. That'll be a question for another day, I suppose. And the communists? I don't know whether or not you believe me. We weren't blind to it either. There were a number of good and decent people among the communists. Sincere. I personally knew people like this, especially outside of the cities. People like my father. My father wasn't accepted into the party. He'd suffered at its hands, but he kept on believing in it. He believed in the party and in our country. Every morning, he'd start his day by reading Pravda from cover to cover. There were more communists without party membership cards than those who had them. Many people were convinced communists in their souls. At all the parades, they carried banners reading, The people and the party are one. Those words weren't make-believe. They were the truth. I'm not agitating for anything. I'm just trying to describe the way things really were. Everyone has already forgotten. Many people had joined the party as an act of conscience, and not out of careerism or some other pragmatic consideration like, If I'm not a party member and I steal, they'll put me in jail. But if I join the party and steal, they'll just kick me out of the party. I get indignant whenever people start talking about Marxism with disdain and a knowing smirk. Hurry up and toss it on the trash heap. It's a great teaching, and it will outlive all persecution. And our Soviet misfortune, too. Because there are a lot of reasons. Socialism isn't just labor camps, informants, and the Iron Curtain. It's also a bright, just world. Everything is shared. The weak are pitied, and compassion rules. Instead of grabbing everything you can, you feel for others. They say to me that you couldn't buy a car, so then no one had a car. No one wore Versace suits or bought houses in Miami. My God, the leaders of the USSR lived like mid-level businessmen. They were nothing like today's oligarchs, not one bit. They weren't building themselves yachts with champagne showers. Can you imagine? Right now, there's a commercial on TV for copper bathtubs that cost as much as a two-bedroom apartment. Could you explain to me exactly who they're for? Gilded doorknobs. Is this freedom? The little man, the nobody, is a zero. You'll find him at the very bottom of the barrel. He used to be able to write a letter to the editor, go and complain at the district party headquarters about his boss or poor building maintenance, about an unfaithful husband. A lot of things about the system were stupid, I don't deny it. But who will even listen to the man in the street today? Who needs him? Remember the Soviet place names? Metallurgists Avenue, Enthusiasts Avenue, Factory Street, Proletariat Street. The little man was the most important one around. You say it was all just talk and a cover-up. Today, no one even attempts to disguise their disdain for him. 
You're broke? Go to hell. Back to your cage. They're renaming the streets. Merchant. Middle class. Nobleman Street. I've even seen Princess Salami and General's Wine. A cult of money and success. The strong with their iron biceps are the ones who survive. But not everyone is capable of stopping at nothing to tear a piece of the pie out of somebody else's mouth. For some, it's simply not in their nature. Others even find it disgusting. When I hear things like that, it definitely stirs up a homo sovieticus in me, too, as the listener. Hearing her talk about street names being changed from those that were about the people to those that were about the rich and famous. Definitely something I can attest to over here in the United States. We definitely have a cult of the rich and powerful. We don't appreciate the layman or the lay worker. We have a strong... Well, I guess it just depends on which side of the aisle you're on, even in our country. But I was going to say there's a strong anti-intellectual view here. Yet at the same time, we attack tradesmen and workers, people that do things like plumbing and electricity. Trade jobs aren't appreciated as it stands now. We live in a weird spot where our academics and our lay workers fight one another, yet still the people at the top profit. More so off of our class struggle, if you ask me. I thought her commentary about her father to be a very interesting takeaway. She says he wasn't allowed into the party, likely because of his previous internment in the camp. That didn't stop him, though. He was still a communist at heart. He read Pravda every morning from cover to cover. She says there was more communists who were active at heart than those that actually had membership cards. She also goes on to say that people were communists or joined the party not because they thought it was going to give them a small slap on the wrist instead of full punishment, not that it was going to get them any kind of special favors, but because there was a real idea behind it, that there was a goal, there was a betterment of the future embedded in this. Did this go off the rails because of corrupt oligarchs? Well, I think the speaker says, or would answer that as a big resounding yes, that the people believed it, but the controllers of it did not. The people guiding the ship, well, it, it sounds like they stripped the ship of all of its goods and then proceeded to crash it into an iceberg or something of that sort. All the while, yeah, having already gotten themselves into the lifeboats. Hope that's a fair comparison because it seems like it as I say it aloud. That just feels like it in a nutshell. Yerevan talks about compassion ruling, that the small man meant something. He could write into his local editor to complain about something, his voice would actually be heard. And now who pities the, the layman, the little man? No one. No one, because everyone's obsessed with the rich and powerful. I can absolutely feel strong sympathies to this clip. Where are you going to see metro stations dedicated to dairy maids and lathe operators? Now it's all about bankers and models. The speaker actually talked again about communists having mansions. In this case, speaking to the ones she's more in favor of, she said they absolutely did not. Going on to say, you've seen my own apartment. Where's my Soviet goal that I'm supposedly hiding? This speaks to the corruption. People thinking that, that those at the top, well, I guess I should say, there's so many layers of corruption, actually. Uh, and it's a very hard subject to put in the words. So apologize, or apologies for me as I search for them. Let's go at it from multiple angles. We have anti-communists who think that the communist leaders at the top were corrupt. 
We have communist leaders at the top that were corrupt, that sold out to the capitalist model. We have capitalists calling any good-hearted communist corrupt. We have people that are uninformed on all sides of the aisle and around the globe pointing at one another saying they're corrupt. But when you actually start looking for it, following the money trail, we have Yerevna saying there wasn't any secret money. There wasn't any secret Soviet gold. What was being sold off has been sold off. And look at the situation that we have as a result. We have people struggling to pay bills nowadays. We have standards of living that are much worse nowadays. There were some spoils at the top, but nothing by today's standards. She said that's what she'd read about during Perestroika. Nothing like how new Russians live, though, with their yachts and their castles, as she claims. Seems very relevant as there's a uh, certain mansion video floating around the internet these days, a tour, uh, that might go to really uh, exclamation point <laughs> this whole thing that she was talking about in the early 2000s, late 90s. With her. She nods in the direction of her friend. We argue, of course. She wants to prove to me that true socialism demands perfect people who simply do not exist. That it's nothing but a crazy ideal, a fantasy. There's no way our people are going to trade in their faded foreign currency and passports with Schengen visas for Soviet socialism. But that's not what I believe in anyway. I think humanity is headed toward socialism, toward justice. There is no other way. Look at Germany, France. There's the Swedish model. What values does Russian capitalism espouse? Hating the underdogs the people who haven't made millions and don't drive Mercedes. Instead of the red flag, it's Christ is risen. And the cult of consumerism? People don't fall asleep thinking of anything lofty. Instead, they mull over how they didn't buy this or get that. Do you really think that this country fell apart because people learned the truth about the gulag? That's what people who write books think. People. Regular people don't care about history. They're concerned with simpler things. Falling in love, getting married, having kids, building a house. Our country fell apart from the deficit of women's boots and toilet paper because of the fact that there were no oranges. It was those goddamn blue jeans. Today, the shops resemble museums, theaters, and people want me to believe that rags from Versace and Armani are all that a person needs that they're enough, that life is nothing but pyramid schemes and promissory notes, that freedom is money, and money is freedom, while our lives aren't worth a kopeck. Well, and, well, and, you know, I can't even find the words. I feel sorry for my little granddaughters. I pity them. That's what gets beaten into their heads every day on TV. I don't agree with it. I was and remain a communist. We take a short break. The eternal tea, this time with the hostess's homemade cherry jam. It was 1989. By then, I was the third secretary of the district party committee. I was recruited to work in the party from the school where I taught Russian language and literature. My favorite writers, Tolstoy, Chekhov, when they first offered me the job, I was intimidated. What a huge responsibility. But I didn't hesitate for a moment. 
I had a real burst of desire to serve the party. That summer, I went home for the holiday. I don't usually wear jewelry, but I had bought myself this cheap necklace. When she saw me, my mother exclaimed, You look like a Tsaritsa. She was so impressed, and it wasn't the necklace that impressed her. My father said, None of us will ever come asking you for favors. You need to have a clean conscience before the people. My parents were so proud, so happy, and I, I, what did I feel? Did I believe in the party? To tell you the truth, I did, and I still do. Come what may, I will never throw out my party membership card. Do I believe in communism? I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to lie. I believed in the possibility of life being governed fairly. And today, as I've already told you, I still believe in that. I'm sick of hearing about how bad life was under socialism. I'm proud of the Soviet era. There's just so much to unpack in every one of these clips. Proud of the Soviet era is a great summary of that. We hear again the juxtaposition between values before and after the fall. People valued education before. People valued standing up for the little man before. People valued growth and integrity. Afterwards, not so much. Values are based on looks. Values are based on how much money you have. Values are based on how well you're kind of stepping on one another in the business place. It's gross. It's not sustainable. To me, as someone born in 1991, just, I guess, two months before the Soviet Union officially collapsed, it's a very weird world to come into. In the U.S., we're preached that making money is everything, yet it's harder than ever to make money in a sustainable fashion. Education is unattainable for most people. Excessive debts come with it. And now, with jobs closed due to pandemic situations, we are, well, we're seeing that the future that was driven home into us, money, 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 that that future doesn't lead to a better place. There is no noble endeavor at the end of it. Again, why I want to look at this book as a start to this podcast is to talk about where we can put our aspirations. We've learned it's ennoble to help people in the U.S., that that's a sign of weakness. Why? Why do we tolerate that sort of belief? It's wrong. We need to help each other, as we see. If this pandemic has taught us anything, we have to be there for each other, more than ever before. So we need a change. We can't just value the mighty dollar above human lives. It gets us to situations where we have huge inequality, massive lack of health care, and all these other systems are just falling apart around us. I'm sorry to push so many of today's modern problems into this book, but as you can hopefully see, or as I'm seeing, problems that were talked about in the 90s in another country are still problems the world faces today. We haven't progressed beyond these beliefs. We haven't fixed the system. And if everyone's just slapping band-aids on it, well it's all likely to fall apart on us. Quote, no one will shout from the rooftops that this is revolting. 
end quote, regarding private jets and gilded toilets. She says, no one will speak for the soul except for the priest. I took that to say that humans value money over human decency and civility. Regular people don't care about history. We don't value anything except that mighty dollar. I apologize if I don't sound like a broken record when I'm talking about this, though it's hard to not try to piece it all together, to put context to each statement, to, to understand the different contexts of the time, and yet the threads that still continue to pull between. She complains that there isn't a great ideal any longer, and I think that's what we are suffering these days. We don't have a great ideal to help people. So we all suffer in silence and and step on one another. We hate the underdog. Who among us could have gone out into the crowd and addressed the people? Initiated a dialogue. Agitated. We were apparatchiks, not orators. I, for instance, gave lectures in which I denounced the capitalists and defended blacks in America. I had the full set of Lenin's collected works in my office, all 55 volumes. But who really read them? People flip through them while cramming for tests in college. Religion is the opiate of the masses. All worship of a divinity is necrophilia. There was a sense of panic. The lecturers, instructors, and secretaries of district and regional party committees. All of us were suddenly scared of visiting workers at factories and students in their dormitories. We were afraid of the phone ringing. What if somebody asked about Sakharov or Bukowski? What would we tell them? Are they the enemies of the Soviet state or not anymore? What was the official line on Rubakov's Children of the Arbat and Chartrov's plays? There were no orders from above. Before, they would tell you when you'd fulfilled an assignment and successfully enforced the party line. Teachers were striking in demand of higher salaries. A young director in some factory workers' club was putting on a forbidden play. My God. At a cardboard factory, the workers had pushed the director out in a cart, shouting and breaking glass. At night, a monument of Lenin was wrapped in a metal cable and toppled. Now passers-by were making obscene hand gestures at it. The party was at a loss. I remember what it was like to be at a loss. People sat in their offices with their blinds shut. Day and night, a reinforced police detachment guarded the party headquarters. We were afraid of the people, while out of inertia, the people were still scared of us. And then they stopped being afraid. People started gathering on the squares by the thousands. I remember one poster that said, Give us 1917, a revolution. I was shocked. It was some trade school students holding it. Kids. Babies. One day, parliamentarians showed up at the district party committee headquarters demanding, show us your special stores. You always have plenty of food to eat while our children are fainting from hunger at school. They found neither mink coats nor black caviar in our cafeteria. But they still wouldn't believe us. You're deceiving the simple people. Everything went into motion. The ground started shaking. Gorbachev was weak. He stalled. On one hand, he was for socialism. But then again, he also wanted capitalism. His biggest concern seemed to be being liked in Europe and in America. Over there, they'd all applaud him. 
Gorby, Gorby, oh, Gorby, he babbled up perestroika. Socialism was dying in front of our very eyes, and those boys of iron had come to take its place. And that is where we're going to leave off for this week. We're going to do a quick recap of that clip we just heard, but that is the area in the book, in the reading, where we will be stopping. We'll be picking up next week with more and trying to continue it. Thank you all that are listening, because I have very first time hosting a book club like this, very first time trying to go through and pull out quotes. So thank you for following along, and I hope this pace is working. So going back, she mentions we were apparatchiks, facilitators of the government, bureaucrats, people that, that made the system work, not orators. If you've ever worked in a government job, I think you'll know that there's a difference between being someone that is uh, working at a lower level administrative level than those at the top. It would be unfair to equate those two as the same. People that work in government in the United States currently are not making the same money that politicians are, not by a long shot. She says she gave speeches against capitalism and the mistreatment of blacks in America. You can see there was an intent, a, a, a want to do good in what she was doing, what she was saying. But the changing of the people's will came across in a scary way. She says, all of a sudden, we were afraid of visiting people and workers. We were afraid of visiting people in their homes. We became afraid of what to tell people. What were the official lines on the books and the films? What if someone came asking about a book that had previously been restricted? Was that still a book in opposition of what they could put out? What was the official line and position on that? She talks about the party being at a loss, a statue of Lenin being toppled and obscene gestures made at it. For those that watch the Capitol assault here in the United States, this all definitely rings true. There's mention of police guarding the Communist Party headquarters. There's talk that people were afraid of the communists, but yet the communists were afraid of the people. There was that momentum still in play, but no one knew where things stood. Then the people stopped being afraid. Then they were holding up signs about revolution. Then they started storming buildings, saying they wanted to see the stores of food, but they didn't find mink coats, nor did they find caviar. In this tale about an average apparatchik, there was nothing hidden. There was nothing to be found. People wanted a boogeyman. And in this case, she most definitely wasn't it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, this chapter, this segment of a chapter. Alexeyevich's secondhand time, The Last of the Soviets, is going to prove to be a very interesting book. Some chapters I'll be letting them read more than I give thoughts on, and sometimes the reverse. I'm very excited to see where this conversation between the two takes us, as her friend will in the next uh, installment start refuting some of these points. Watching their back and forth should be very enlightening to us. If you're someone out there listening and you have things to add, please don't hesitate to reach out. Again, I'm very accessible over on Facebook. Just type in fb.com forward slash Kyle's Communist Book Club. The links in the podcast description will get you everywhere you want to go, including my other shows. Go ahead and check out the Twitter account while you're at it, because over at Kyle Communist, you're going to see some of the uh, photos that I've been sent. You're going to see some of the pins I received in the mail. That's just a fun place to connect and share some cool Soviet goodies. If you haven't had the chance to pick up the book yet, I highly encourage you to go over to Audible or Amazon and snag yourself a copy. If you use the Audible link in the description below, you should get a free book just by signing up, so you could drop it on this one. Or pick it up through our Amazon link there, and it gives me a small kickback. 
Better yet, if you get the chance, support a local retailer. But you might have to call this one in. Thank you again for listening, folks. Stay safe out there, everyone. And we will catch up with you next week. The continuation of On the Beauty of Dictatorship and the Mystery of Butterflies Crushed Against the Pavement. Goodbye.